Um, Jeremiah 44 for a few minutes. Jeremiah 44. So this is an ancient prophecy, but it has incredibly um, rich application for us. Jeremiah 44, and we'll start reading in a minute. Let me just make sure that we're all on the same page as far as the life and times of Jeremiah. He did live in very tumultuous times. This was the time in Israel's history when the uh, empire of Assyria was um, on its way out, so to speak, and the empire of Babylon was on the rise. Uh, at the same time, there's another great power, that's Egypt, and you have Judah sort of caught in the middle. And the Lord spoke a word through His prophets to the people um, to place their hope and trust in Him, and not in worldly powers, but that was always the draw, that was the temptation. And they were caught up with um, idolatry and, and sin, And the Lord, through the prophets, said that God was actually raising up Babylon. God was behind it. And God was going to use Babylon to punish Judah for her sin. And through the course of Jeremiah's ministry, of course, he saw many deportations of the people. He was known as the weeping prophet. Eventually, Jeremiah himself was carried away uh, down to Egypt, you know, uh, rather against his will. and there he, he spent his days, um, Egypt, uh, or, or rather Jerusalem was eventually destroyed. Uh, and the people who escaped Judah at that time, Jerusalem, had considered that they dodged a bullet. They'd got out of the firing line, got down to Egypt where it was safe, where they had a sort of strong protector, um, had really escaped the kind of impending judgment of God that was threatened to fall upon Judah. Uh, One of the great reasons for this judgment that was going to fall, of course, is Israel's idolatry. Judah was plagued by idolatry. They were borrowing the worldview of the pagans around them. And of course, that's still going on, right? Idolatry is not gone away. It's just taken a different form in Western culture. We don't put little carved images on the shelf, but we have worldly philosophies, anti-godly philosophies that are dominating. That's what Israel was doing. They were borrowing the worldview of the pagans around them, and much of their temptation to idolatry actually came through intermarriage, which is still a problem. Um, in other words, people marrying not people of another race. The problem is people marrying a, a, of an, people of another uh, religion, people who do not have the same faith uh, that you do. And, of course, that was a great problem for Israel And so, under the influence of these ungodly wives, many of the Israelite people were led astray into the worship of false deities, paying homage to all kinds of local gods from the peoples around them, one of whom was known as, quote, the Queen of Heaven. You remember that from reading through uh, Jeremiah this year, perhaps? The Queen of Heaven. She was the goddess of the sky, the goddess of the night sky. She was connected with sexuality and fertility and war. Later on, the Greeks called her Aphrodite. In Jeremiah's day, she was known as Astare or Ishtar. A lot, most people think that these are the same. Um, The idols erected in her honor 
were probably those idols called Ashtaroth. Um, she had come to be seen, this goddess, as sort of the consort of God, sort of the female counterpart for Yahweh. Blasphemy as it is, this is the way, this is this goddess that these people were worshiping. So there's God, the king of heaven, and then there's Asherah, the queen of heaven. And it is, of course, such a great evil whenever men imagine God in any way other than in keeping with his own self-revelation. That really is the heart of the second commandment. We are not free to imagine God in any other way other than what he has, as he has revealed himself to be, as he is in reality. And so they were breaking the the second commandment. They were worshiping other gods. They were not allowing their thinking to be chastened and constrained by God's revelation. Of course, that's still happening today too. People say to themselves, well, I can't imagine God being like that. Right? What are they doing? They're literally worshiping an idol, worshiping a God of their own imagination. This is how I imagine God to be. This is what I imagine Him to be like. This is, a, this is at the heart of the breaking of the second commandment. Our thinking about God, our worship of God, has to be governed by God's own self-revelation for two reasons. One, because we're separated from any independent knowledge of God by virtue of the creator-creature distinction. We're creatures. God's in the category by Himself as Creator. We cannot penetrate the Godhead to know anything true about Him. He has to come down to us and reveal Himself. And secondly, we are dependent on the Word of God in order to know what's true about God because we are alienated from a true knowledge of God by virtue of the taint of sin upon our minds. So not only are we separated from God as creatures, this creator-creature distinction, but then we have sin on top of that. There is no way for any of us to know anything true about God except that God has said, here's who I am. Here's what I am. Praise God He has. That's important, and it's going to play into what we're talking about. We are to live by every word of God. We're to know God according to His own self-revelation were to worship and serve Him according to His Word. That then really sets it up for what's going on here in Jeremiah 44. So take a look. We'll read most of the chapter, but just in piecemeal here. Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt at Migdal, at Taphanes, at Memphis, and in the land of Pathros, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the disaster I brought upon Jerusalem and upon the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation, and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed. The the land was being destroyed, right? God says it's because of your evil, provoking me to anger, and in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor their fathers. Yet I persistently sent you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear. Boy, the Lord is gracious, even in their sin, to send them warnings. 
And yet they did not listen. They did not incline their ear to turn from this evil, verse 5, and to make no offerings to other gods. Therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled on the cities of Judah and on the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation as to this day. And now, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, infant and child, from the midst of Judah, leaving no remnant. And it really struck me how the Lord said it there in verse 7. Does it strike you? Why do you commit this great evil, what? Against yourselves. Of course it's a great evil against God. Of course. But the Lord reminds them that all idolatry, all sin brings great evil back upon ourselves. It hurts us. It ruins us. It brings us to great destruction. The problem is the people are often blinded as to the harm they're bringing on themselves. You know somebody who's going after his own way, and he's just blinded to the harm that it's bringing on his, himself, his family, his marriage, his kids. And that's what was going on with these people. Going on in verse 8, the Lord says to them, Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil and the evil of your wives which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves even to this day nor have they feared nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before them, uh, before you and before your fathers. Therefore, verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to be, to come to the land of Egypt to live and they shall be consumed in the land of Egypt shall they fall. By the sword and by famine they shall be consumed. From the least to the greatest they shall die by the sword and by famine and they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives. And the point of the Lord's judgment here is that it's long in coming because He's patient with them. He, he Remember through the prophets, He said, I'm going to bring my judgment upon this people in Jerusalem and Judah. They thought they've escaped. The Lord's hand is not shortened. He can reach down into, into, um, into Egypt and bring His punishment on them there. And He says that He will. But here then is the response. Now here is really getting down to where I wanted to show you. The response of those who have blinded eyes. Verse 15. Then, all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered to Jeremiah, and here's what they said, verse 16. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven, and pour out our drink offerings to her as we did 
both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Jerusalem and in the streets, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. They stubbornly refused to repent of their sin, even when they're warned by God, by Jeremiah, living in the land of Egypt. Now, why are they so set in their ways? Why are they determined not to listen to God? Why are they determined that His Word is of little consequence to them? Here's their reasoning. They were making decisions according to their own perceived experience rather than by trust in the Word of God. And here's where you see it. Look in verse 17, the end of the verse. For then, they said, when we were worshiping the Queen of Heaven, okay, in Judah, then we had what? We had plenty of food. We prospered. We saw no disaster. But since we left off making the offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out our drink offerings to her, what's their situation? We've lacked everything. We've been consumed by the sword and by famine. Do so you get what their argument is? We, this is what works, Jeremiah. We made offerings to the Queen of Heaven and everything went great. And then all of this bad stuff started happening. We, we, we stopped doing these offerings and now, and now things are terrible. Now we don't have what we need. I, I believe this is the classic argument for those who do not live by faith. Don't tell me what God says. This is my experience. Boom. That's it. That's, that's their argument. Don't tell me what God says. This is our experience. And boy, that is a hard argument to overcome. It's an impossible argument to overcome unless someone comes at it from a perspective of faith. Unless he says, I'm living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Even though it doesn't seem to match what I see or what seems to be working, it's not working, but it's true. These people live by what they can see, not by what God said. They live by how they feel rather than by what God said. They live by what makes sense to them rather than by what God said. And the danger and the temptation, I think, is, is real for even us who are believers to sort of fall into a kind of unbelieving thinking at times. And here's the way I've experienced it in a couple of situations. I remember confronting a young man about his sin, and his argument was just along this line. Basically, well, that's just how I feel, and nothing in the Bible is going to change that. You see what the heart of the argument is? The heart of the argument wasn't, let's, let's discuss what God said and our different views of it. It's just that here's what God said, but here's my experience or hearing about a young couple's dramatic change of theology years ago. And the testimony was given that basically their position was, you know, we don't really have Bible for our change, but let us tell you about our experience. That was the driver. That was what trumped everything else. And that is where the temptation lies. It's a sort of, it's a sort of godless pragmatism. This is, this is what works, 
So let's not worry so much about what God said. This is what makes sense. This is our experience. This is how we feel. No um, man shall not live by uh, bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And let me just say, you know, in thinking about experience and our personal experiences of the world, have you ever thought about about this, that really no experience stands on its own. Every experience must be interpreted in the light of some larger framework, some larger narrative. And here's how God frames the experience of the Jews who had fled to Egypt. Remember, they're arguing on the basis of their experience. God's going to place that that experience in a broader framework. Verse 20. He says, um, we're skipping down a little bit, 20. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, as for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come to into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and the waste and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and in his statutes and in his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as it is this day. In other words, God identifies their sin as the cause of Jerusalem's destruction. They're blind to this causal connection. They just see that when we were worshiping the idol, that things were well, then things sort of went bad, we got out of our idol worship, and now things are, are, are still bad. And, and, and they did have a certain experience, but God is saying, okay, whatever experience you're, you had, you need to put that into this broader framework. Here's why you had this experience. Let me, let me enlighten you. They weren't aware that they were actually interpreting their experience in a framework that didn't correspond to reality. They were telling themselves a false narrative. It was true that they had periods of prosperity and periods of lack, but they were telling themselves the wrong story about it. They were fitting it in. There are no bare facts. Every fact fits into a, a bigger interpretive framework. Right? We see that a lot of times. People say, well, the facts are on the side of, of, of non-Christians here. Well, if you look at it from a non-Christian perspective, then yeah, the, the facts are the same. The facts are the facts. The problem is how you interpret them. And, and I think that's exactly what's going on here. God's Word and God's Word alone reveals the reality, the proper framework for understanding and interpreting our experiences. And God goes on to enlarge this interpretive framework, verses 27 and following. Jump down there a little bit. Verse 27, 
He says of those living prosperously in Egypt, Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. Remember, they said, hey, we got down here, we started worshiping our God again, our goddess again, and everything's going well now. God said, that's not the end of your story. I am watching over you ultimately to bring disaster. All of the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. And those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to be to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word shall, will stand, mine or theirs. This shall be the sign to you, declares the Lord. I will punish you in this place in order that you may know that my words shall surely stand against you for harm. Thus says the Lord, behold, I give you, I give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hands, hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, the king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. And you know what? In a few years, history tells us that's exactly what the Lord said did come to pass. And God brought judgment upon the Egyptians, upon the Jews there. Pharaoh Hophra that he mentioned was actually overthrown in a kind of military coup d'etat. And everything happened exactly as the Lord had said. The problem is that when Jeremiah first spoke these words, things were going pretty well. They didn't, their experience wasn't what God said, for them, experience trumped the word. And again, I'm getting at this. This is the one big point. Don't fall into the trap of letting experience trump the word of God. Remember that every experience that we have has to be understood in in the broader framework of what God is doing. And only God can reveal that, and we have to trust Him about that. Um, This is the simple application this afternoon. Beware of the temptation to live by experience rather than to live by faith. To live by, quote, what works instead of, quote, what's revealed. What does the Scripture say? The just shall live by... Yeah. Hebrews 11 tells us that faith operates in the realm of things not seen, and in the realm of things yet to come. The problem is that the world's pragmatism is both nearsighted and premature. They say, we're li- this is our experience, but it's nearsighted and it's premature. It doesn't take into account the broader uh, history of what God is doing. Part of the problem, this is part of the problem when people say, hey, listen, Christian, you're on the wrong side of history. Look around. Things are changing. You're getting left behind. This is what the Judeans said to Jeremiah, right? You're on the wrong side of history, pal. But the problem is, they had such a very narrow view of history. And this is what Christians have to do. We have to say, okay, here's an experience that we're going through right now. But we have to put that in the broader interpretive context of what God what God says and what God's doing. Living people people will say that living by God's word doesn't work in real life. It does work at a level that they don't understand, and it will work on a time scale that they cannot comprehend. 
So the reminder is simple. Beware of living by what works. Beware of living by experience. Beware of living by how I feel. What seems to make sense. Rather than living by every word of God. Amen? Just a simple reminder. I hope it sticks with us. Heavenly Father, keep this in our minds. Please guard us against a failure of faith. Help us to move on, living by every word that comes from your mouth. In Jesus' name, amen.